Good morning. It's wonderful to be in Eau Claire this morning and uh, to fellowship with you. I've enjoyed the service and uh, the praise and worship and everything else. But uh, just a, a little bit of history. I was a member of the uh, first graduating class at ORU. And uh, we started a group and God led us to the nations probably probably 80 nations, uh, and uh, we, we saw some wonderful, wonderful things happen. Um, one of the young ladies that traveled in our group, Living Sound, is named Judy Amdahl. She came from Seattle. We found out that she was interested in joining the group, and I Remember, I got on a plane, flew to Seattle, and we talked, and I sensed that this was something the, the Lord had. So uh, Judy worked with Living Sound for, I think, six years? Six years, yeah. But it's wonderful to be back here and to see this, uh, to see Judy and Mark and the, the burden they have and the praise of your congregation. It just lifted my spirit this morning. Pastor Mark asked me to tell a story before I get into scripture. Last year, I received a phone call from the Minister of the Interior in Kurdistan. He said, Dr. Law, I'm going to ask you a personal favor. And I said, what is that? He said, would you come over here and meet all our de denominational Christian leaders inside of Kurdistan and he said, I want you to ask them what they would like the government to provide in a new religious constitution that deals directly with the state. Uh, we want Christians everywhere in the Middle East to feel protected inside of our state. Kurdistan, by the way, is one of the three provinces in Iraq. So if you know anything about Iraq, and I'm sure all of you do, that uh, it's, he was asking me something pretty amazing. I mean, it kind of blew my mind on the telephone. Would you come? I said, can I bring people with me? He said, bring everybody you can. We gathered 13 pastors together from the US, Canada, and the UK. And we went over to meet with the uh, Minister of the Interior, Kareem Sanjari. One day, one of the first days we were there, we were, it, they planned to take us to Mosul. Mosul is where ISIS destroyed the city. It had about a million and a half people. It's one of the largest uh, cities in all of Iraq. I wanted to go and see because th there had been incredible damage there. So the prime minister put on the uh, uh, kind of a little a welcome session for us, and they gave us four land cruisers, government land cruisers, bullet, bulletproof class. And um, they sent along probably 10 soldiers, all of them AK-47s. My pastors kind of looked a little shocked when they walked out of the hotel, and here were all these guns in the parking lot. Well, they put us in the car and we traveled probably about 45 minutes. And we had to stop at a, a checkpoint on the highway. And then everything went 
crazy. Uh, there were a bunch of young men from Iran waiting for us. They heard that Americans were coming. We were only 50 miles from the Iranian border. And I knew if they kidnapped us and hauled us over the border, no one would ever hear of us again. Anyway, their young men, it would be about 80 to 100 of them, they were all carrying AK-47s. And uh, they, they started a little tussle between our guards. The prime minister had said, don't, you don't fight them because if that happens, they may open fire and, and kill the Americans. So I saw one guy ruffle, uh, rifle butt uh, one of our guards in, in the chin uh, as the thing was going on. But then they started to shoot. Uh, it's hard to describe what you feel inside when someone is shooting and they know they hate you. A young man was standing in front of me, 18 years of age, looked to me like he was on drugs and shooting his AK-47 in the air like this and the bullets were spitting out on my window. I was watching this and we probably uh, went through, they probably went through maybe 100, 115 shells that day. Then they pulled up a 50 millimeter cannon behind us. One fire from that, one shot from that cannon would blow a land cruiser into the air. We knew we were in trouble. My brother-in-law who was with me said to Jason, my son, he said, Jason, you, you're a young man with two young children. I have raised my children. He says, if they open fire on the car, you lay on the floor in the back seat and I'll lay on, on top of you. This is real stuff, folks. This is frontline mission. This is what God has called me to do. And we do what we do. By the way, we obviously got away. I'm here. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was, uh, but it, it was an experience and I'm heading back in a short time to deal with the prime minister. He's asked me to come back and help them frame a new religious constitution that will protect Christians in the Middle East. This has never happened in the history of the world as far as I know. It's an honor that only God could give and I'll be going over there at my earliest convenience to help. Thank you, I was here two years ago, was it? Two years. I was here two years ago and uh, so some of you know who I am but uh, it's good to come back. And let me tell you, you have two amazing gifts in this church. They're called Mark and Judy. Friends of mine, I honor them. And I know how hard they carry you in their hearts before the Lord and want to serve you as a church. And I bless them in Jesus' name. It's an honor to be in this pulpit. I'm going to turn you to one verse in the Bible. Very simple. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's in Luke 2.52. The Lord brought me to this maybe three, four years ago. It's talking about Jesus. It says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Three things are mentioned here. 
And I tell you, I had read the Bible how many times? How many, how many of you do that? You read it, and then all of a sudden, one day, something makes sense. And I looked at it, Jesus increased in wisdom. It means he got wiser. He grew in knowledge. That, that happens as you grow in life. But he grew in stature. That means he grew from a baby into a young man. But notice the third one. Jesus in, uh, increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. The word favor in the Greek is the word for grace. It is the word charis. This Bible verse tells us straight out that Jesus Christ grew in grace as he walked before the Father. That, is a, that was a haunting thought to me. Jesus is the Son of God. Why does he need more grace? He came down as a man. He is the Son of God. Why, uh, why would Jesus need to increase in grace? And, and that thought was, born in, a thought was born in me. Our text indicates the idea of various levels of grace. And we are responsible for walking in the grace of God with as much grace as we can get. That's a, a compelling thought. You and I are just on our way. We're going to have a whole lot more grace than we have now. But I'll tell you one thing. The fact that God can give that to us is mirrored throughout Scripture over and over and over again. There's a, uh, as, as I look through the, the New Testament particularly, uh, there's one thought about grace. The, the big issue in my life is handling God's grace rightly or wrongly. The fact that Jesus needed to increase in grace, again, is a profound concern. If Jesus needed to increase in grace, how about you? How about me? That's where it hits, it hits home, hits the road. And uh, uh, I'd like to read to you some scriptures that talk about various levels of grace through the New Testament. Had the wrong PowerPoint sent from a message this morning, so I'll read these scriptures to you out of the Bible. But here, just here are ideas on the variation and the variables of grace in your life and mine. It says in Acts 4:33, when the revival after Pentecost came on the early church, the Bible says, "And great grace was upon them all." It was an increased dose of the goodness of God, praise the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, 1, uh, Paul says, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That happens in churches all over this country. We plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians 8, 7, See that you abound in the grace of giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, my favorite verse in the New Testament on grace, and it says, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always in all things and in all places may abound unto every good work. My wife is an English teacher at Oral Roberts University, and she pointed out to me how uh, there are seven superlatives in this verse. You can't say more in one uh, sentence of the English language than are here. Let's count them. 
Uh, and God is able to make all, number one. God's grace abound, too. There's number two. That you having all sufficiency, three. In all things, at all, in all things, four, five. That in all, at all times you may abound in every good work. Wow. God wants his grace abounding in your, your heart and mind. And I, I am on a, a quest to grow in the grace of God. Something very important to me. And I believe that this is taught clearly in the New Testament. We're saved by grace. We know that. We're in the kingdom of God because of the grace of Jesus that reached out and touched us. But in our walk, there are different ways for us to grow in grace, as Jesus did. Two questions. How do I shut off the grace of God? How do I receive more grace? Very, very pointed questions. And I want to suggest to you that the one little verse in James 4, 6 says it all. It says, but God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you want more grace, the first thing we got to do is humble ourselves. We don't like doing that. I don't. I'm sure you don't either, but I, I put my message together as I, as I thought about humbling ourselves and what we need to do. And there are three ways I want to talk about now that we use in our lives to uh, humble ourselves before God. The first one is thanksgiving. The second one is giving. And the third one is forgiving. That's the hard one, the last one. Just think about this for a moment. I, I, I love the, your choruses, the uh, things you were saying, and, and enjoyed the praise and worship group. And uh, I, I noticed the attitude of thanksgiving. One thing you, we do to humble ourselves is to thank God for who he is. And to come to church as we are this morning and to hear the name of the Lord uplifted. That is an attitude of humility. When we enter into our praise for God, we are opening ourselves to his grace, returning and affecting and impacting our lives. The first thing that grace does is it changes the way you talk. The Bible says about Jesus that uh, in the Messianic Psalm says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured out on your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. When was grace poured out on the lips of Jesus? When the soldiers came from the Pharisees to capture them. And when they came back, they came without them. And the Pharisees were, well, what happened? Why don't you have Jesus? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. This was grace incarnate. And uh, he continually gave thanks to the Lord regularly. Uh, and it, it, it's a beautiful thing to see. I could say a lot about this. I remember when uh, 
Judy was with us in South Africa, and we sang at the Billy Graham Crusade. And uh, <laughs> I remember my guitarist Don moaned with his amp right by Billy Graham's ear. And he was wincing like this. <laughs> oh, it was something to see. I'd never seen anything like that before. And uh, anyway, we, we had a good time. But Billy, there's been a major crime, a black and white thing that happened in the country. And the press came from around the world to trap Billy Graham in his words. And I stood there watching that press conference. And I walked away from that and I said to myself, there is a man who understands grace. There is a man who care, shapes his phrases and his words very carefully before God. Thanksgiving to the Lord will change the way we talk. Do you know there's no word in the Greek for thanksgiving in the New Testament? The same word for thanksgiving is the word for grace. And that's why you can take the same translation of the same verse, and one translation will talk about grace, the other translation will talk about thanksgiving. Thanksgiving and grace are tied up together in the economy of God and in the Greek language. I think that's fantastic, actually. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Grace seasoned with salt. What does salt do to your food? Brings out the flavor. And there's something about grace in your life and mine that brings out the flavor. And it's a godly flavor. Would somebody say amen this morning? You notice when Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes on the hillside, first thing he did before he broke bread was he prayed and he gave thanksgiving to God. He said, Father, I thank you. That's where we get the habit of praying before our meals. It was Jesus out there with thousands of people. Um, grace makes our words attractive. And I'll tell you one thing. If you learn how to bless your children, I have six. If you learn how to bless your children and are thankful to God for who and what they are, you are transmitting grace by your words of encouragement and uplifting. Would you say amen this morning? All right, I want to go to point number two. The first one is thanksgiving, the second one is giving. There's a, a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 4, and here's what it says. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches in Macedonia, that in a time of great affliction, uh, they, in, in their joy, gave money they didn't have. He said that it was the riches of their liberality, for I bear witness. They came to Paul, and they'd taken an offering. They were poor, a very poor church. Jerusalem had had a famine. They came to Paul and insisted that he receive their gift and take it to the saints in Jerusalem. Later on in that chapter, it calls their giving the grace of giving. 
It's the most beautiful chapter on giving in grace in the, in the New Testament. I'd, I'd like to tell a personal story, if I could, this morning. I, uh, I grew up in the plains of Canada. I was a rancher, worked with 500 cattle. And uh, one day, word came that Oral Roberts was going to speak in the hockey arena in Edmonton, 350 miles north. I begged the day off from Ed, my rancher friend, and drove up. When I dro drove to the crusade, I was there early, and they were practicing music for the e evening that night. And the young man on the organ had a talent to play like something I'd never heard before. And I sat there and big eyes, and when it was all over, he walked down from the organ. I walked up. I said, I'm, I'm Terry Law from Medicine Hat. I'm an evangelist. I've been traveling overseas. And he said, wow, you ought to think about coming to Oral Roberts University. I, I said, okay. And uh, that night after Oral preached, he preached on Acts 9, Paul on the way to Damascus, powerful, prayed for the sick. I saw people healed. And uh, as I was walking out of the building, I saw in the lobby a little table with some brochures on it, advertising a new university in Tulsa called Living Sound, called Oral Roberts University. I picked up a brochure, and all of a sudden, everything went dead quiet. It was after the service, hundreds of people were moving to pick up their cars in the parking lot, but everything went quiet. And inside of me, I heard a still, small voice say, I want you to go to this school. I looked at the cost, 1600 bucks. I was making 50 bucks a week. No way to pay for the education. And so the Lord and I had a bit of a parley there for a while because I wasn't happy. I didn't want to state publicly, I'm going to ORU. I've got no money to go. And so I wrestled with the Lord for a couple of months. And one night I just gave up. I said, all right, God, I'm going to tell people that I'm going to ORU, and Ed Stahl is the first one I'm going to tell tomorrow morning. Five o'clock, we were out with the pickup truck laying a new fence. And I said to Ed, right out loud, I said, Ed, the Lord spoke to me when I was up at Oral Roberts meeting in Edmonton, and the Lord is telling me I have to go to Oral Roberts University. He looked at me, and he was shocked. And he said, uh, get in the truck. His eyes were full of tears. He was a rough, tough rancher. He said, get in the truck. So I called in the truck. We drove a couple uh, miles across the prairie. We got out. He said, see that spot over there? I said, yes. He said, an angel of the Lord appeared to me in my field two months ago and told me you were going to Oral Roberts University. And when you made up your mind, I was to pay the bill. I tell you what is connected conjointly with that story. When I was in Bible school my last year in Edmonton, we were sending a missionary to Kenya. 
And the pastor did something I'd never seen before. He said, I want anybody who'd give $100 to stand up. And I was curious. I was up in the balcony. There were about 800 people there. And uh, I was waiting for people with money that I knew in the congregation, because I knew everybody there, to signify or raise a hand. And that's what he asked. Please raise your hand. And I'm looking critically at everybody down below me from the balcony, and all of a sudden, I get this feeling come from here all the way down to my toes. And I said, oh, no, Lord, not me. I don't have any money. They want $100 to send that missionary. I don't have the money. But I, I wrestled right then because I knew God was saying something. And I said, well, Lord, the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver, and I'm not very cheerful right now. But I'm going to put up my hand. If he doesn't see me, I'm not going to put it up again. So I stuck my hand up like that. <laughs> and Pastor Bob said, Terry, see, the, see that up in the balcony. Thank you for your sacrifice. Now, let me explain the details. It was 20 below zero in the middle of the winter. I was taking a bus six miles to get to the Bible school. I was giving away my bus fare. I was going to have to walk six miles and 60 or 40, 20 below zero, however it was. And it was a difficult decision to make. But when it came time, I asked God for his grace. And when I put up my hand and the pastor saw it, I realized that I was in trouble. I ran out of bus money on Wednesday. No way to get back home. Just going to have to walk after school back to uh, where I was staying in somebody's home. Went to the chapel to pray for a few minutes. Someone walked up and put beside me uh, an envelope. To this day, I don't know who it was. All soiled and old bills. Somebody had been saving it. There was $53 in there. And I remember saying, God, thank you. I don't have to walk six miles in 40 below weather. But that weekend, I went down to my, my dad's church in Medicine Hat, Alberta. He asked me to preach both services. And there was a man in, in the audience who I later came to work for named Ed Stahl. Ed walked up to me, and he handed me an envelope, and I don't think I'd ever seen a $100 bill in my life. But there were three of them in the envelope. That is connected exactly to an angel of the Lord talking to Ed in his field. Remember when the angel came to Cornelius, your prayers and your alms are come up as a more memorial before God. One of the most important things in your walk with God is what you do with your money. And I'm not asking for an offering right now. There's, that's not coming. I'll leave that to Pastor Mark. But it's so important that we are generous and share because when, let me tell you, when you have to make and give away money that you don't have, 
which is what the churches did in Macedonia. That's when you get, give what you can afford, that's one thing. When you move beyond what you can afford, that's when you move into grace. Because you are throwing yourself on God. You are saying to the Lord, I want to honor you. I want to give. I want to support the kingdom of God. And that's what's happening in this church as you, as you donate and support the work of God here. It's wonderful. But I want to encourage you. I'll never forget when I was working over in Iraq. And uh, what was a hurricane back in Katrina? When Katrina hit and New Orleans was kind of wiped out. I got a letter from Iraq one day, poorly written. I opened up the letter. It was a check for $1,000 from people in Iraq who wanted to help America and wanted to help our victims in Katrina. And they had sacrificed to give. God bless them in ways that I cannot explain to you today, but... Uh, how do we humble ourselves? Number one, thanksgiving. Number two, giving. Very simple giving. The grace of giving, the Bible says. And number three is forgiving. I'm going to talk about that now. This probably is the most important step for many of us in this room. There are people in your lives that need to be forgiven. And you have to do the forgiving. God doesn't force you. He encourages you. There's a beautiful book on forgiveness written by a, a woman who I, I met many, many years ago called Corey Ten Boom. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place. And Corey was born and raised in Holland in the first half of the 20th century. She saw Hitler and his Nazi troops grow just across the border from, Hol from Holland. And when they realized that there was an invasion imminent, her father had built a home and hidden a spot in the middle of the home behind walls that they called the hiding place. They took nine Jews and kept them inside of their house, fed them at night. Uh, it was wild after a couple of years. Someone that they knew went to the German police and told them what was going on. When they came to the house, they took Corey, her younger sister Betsy, and uh, the nine Jews, and they were captured. And Corey said, "We were taken to a place in Auschwitz or in." Uh, uh, Germany called Ravensbrück. It was a woman's prison. They practiced cruelty on women, especially in that particular prison. And when uh, the war was over, well, first of all, let me say that her sister Betsy died in prison. He said one of the most embarrassing things for us was they would ask us to undress before we went in to shower and the soldiers would look at our, na our nakedness. And she said, uh, I decided that God wanted the, the Dutch people to forgive the Germans. 
And she said, I, I was preaching a message of forgiveness. And then she said, one day, everything changed. She said, I was looking at the audience from the platform. And I saw one of the guards who had made a strip. And he stood there in the service. And she was just totally floored. She didn't know what to do or how to handle it. Uh, but the man came up to her after the service. And he said, uh, uh, I want to get this right. Um, his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached often to the people of Holland that you need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts came boiling up in my memory, I saw the sin of those thoughts, of my thoughts. I strained to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. But the, the slightest spark of, uh, of warmth, of charity, there wasn't any of that in, in my heart at all. I hated the man because he'd been responsible for the death of my younger sister. So she says, as she stood there, she prayed said, God, I can't forgive him, but I know I have to forgive him. And she stood there struggling to reach her hand out to take his hand. And all of a sudden, God gave that grace. She reached out, shook his hand, and forgave him. It changed her life forever. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened from my shoulder along my arm and through my hand to the current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart came a flood of forgiveness that only God could do. Um, this is one of the most important scriptures in the Bible on, whoops, I'm sorry. Thanks. I'm only 75 years of age, so you'll forgive me. Let me read to you something about forgiveness in Ephesians 4. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good and necessary to build up and bless people, that it may impart grace to the hearers. This next verse changed my life several years back. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, for whom you are sealed on the day of redemption. Here's what we do to hinder the Holy Spirit in, in us, to show bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Let it all be put away from you with all malice. And it goes on in verse 32. And the kind... Be, and be kind to one another, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. I have had major breakthroughs come to me when I have decided to forgive. You may have a quarrel in your family, with your children, with your relatives. 
you may have been dealt with wrongly. I just had something happen to me that just uh, kind of bowled me over. But I realized that if I was going to honor the Holy Spirit, let me, let me read to you what, uh, what, what I've written down here in notes on the, uh, uh, the word grieve. The word grieve in the text is the Greek word lupe. The Greek word that denotes a pain or grief that can only be experienced between two people who deeply love each other. It's a word, it's a word between a husband and wife when one of them finds out the other's been unfaithful. Now, the Bible says you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to grieve the Spirit of God. As long as I live and serve the Lord, I want to humble myself. But I've had to humble myself and talk to people who'd stab me in the back. I had to tell them, I forgive you. This is one of the hardest ways to grow in grace. Because you're justified in the fact of what they've done to you. But if you don't take a step to move in forgiveness, you will miss out on so much of the grace of God. And I want to encourage you as a congregation this morning, who does God want you to forgive? Let's bow our heads in a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the simple word from your word this morning. We want to grow in grace. It's the passion of my heart, Father, to grow in your grace because I need it for life and ministry. I want to grow in that grace. And I pray this morning as we are sitting here considering that you speak to hearts, Lord, especially for those who need to forgive someone close and uh, if you're willing to forgive them and to pray a simple prayer, putting their name in the prayer and then to bless them, that's what forgiveness really does. Forgiveness moves us to a place where we're, we're willing to bless those people who have hurt us. Let me ask the question. Heads bowed, eyes closed, no one looking around. How many people are there in this audience that need to forgive? And you're making a decision today to move forward in the grace of God. I see hands all over this room. Thank you, Lord. Now, I'd like to pray with you as a congregation. Forgiveness on the person who has offended you. Let's pray this. I'll pray it first. You repeat after me if you would out loud. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for inviting me into your kingdom. But I need to forgive someone. And I bring their names up before you right now. And speak those names in the quietness of your own heart. And tell, tell the Lord, Father, I decide today 
to tear up the IOU. They don't owe me anything. And I ask you to, in return, bless them and give them the grace of God this morning. And I thank you for receiving more grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. I heard there's a book on forgiveness written by uh, R.T. Kendall. He had a pastor friend in Florida. And the pastor's wife had a, a word from God in a prayer meeting. There was a lady who'd been hit by a drunken driver and was crippled for 22 years. She prayed for healing and nothing happened. But the Lord gave the pastor's wife a word and she said, have you ever forgiven the drunk who hit you and who destroyed your life? She said, he destroyed 22 years of my life. She said, pastor's wife said, well, listen, not only do you forgive him because you say you have, but I want you to pray blessing on him right now at this altar, right now. She knelt down at the front chair and started to pray and started to bless the man who destroyed her life. All of a sudden, when she got up, her bones began to crack and pop and the pastor's wife said, I saw her entirely healed. But it was being willing to pray for those who've hurt us. So can I suggest this morning that you spend some time talking to the Lord about whatever has aggrieved you and hurt you? But God will be faithful and he will extend grace. Praise the Lord. I think I'm done, Pastor.